0: How do you know if something is true? When I typed in the question, Google found 8 billion, 250 million, results in 0.63 seconds. Obviously, I didn't try to read them all. But the first one did catch my attention. It was a site called Curious Kids. The heading read, How can you tell if something is true? Here are three questions to ask yourself about what you see, hear, and read. The first question was simply, who said it? Which is obviously the place to start. The second one was, what's the evidence which is only logical to pursue? The third question, the one that really caught my eye, was a bit unexpected. Do you want to believe it. It went on to say, emotions can get in the way of knowing what's true. Messages that make you feel strong emotions, especially ones that are funny or make you angry, are the most important ones to check, but they're also the hardest to ignore. Advertisers know this, Many ads try to be funny or make the things they're selling look cool because they want you to focus on how you feel rather than what you think. And being older doesn't mean you're automatically better at spotting false information. 41% of 18 to 34-year-olds and 44% of adults 65 and older admitted to have fallen for a fake news story In a 2018 study, other research showed adults over 65 were seven times as likely to share articles from fake sites as younger people were. So if you've been eagerly waiting for that new game and somebody posts a video that says it's coming out early, your wanting it to be true can make you ignore your common sense, leaving you open to being fooled. The best question you can ask yourself when you're thinking about a message is, do I want to believe it? If the answer is yes, it's a good sign that you should slow down and check the source and evidence more closely. That's pretty good advice for kids of all ages. There are obviously some things we want to believe and some we don't, and we do tend to believe what we want to believe more readily than what we don't. That can be evidenced by the news channels we watch, the podcasts we listen to, the movies we go to see, and what we read. And politicians always play to their base because when you preach to the choir, you're more likely to get an amen. Hearing only what you want to hear, however, can keep you from hearing all you need to hear. And believing only what you want to believe makes it easy to believe a lie. So how do we know what to believe? And how do we know if what we believe is true? Well, that pertains to religious beliefs as well as political ones. And there's a real danger when the two are linked together. But even non-political, traditional Christian beliefs are under attack, maybe even more today than in past generations. The stats differ, but many indicate that at least 20% of Americans don't believe in God. (laughs) One I read even suggested that's over half. Don't believe in God. Only 20% believe the Bible is literally true, and shockingly, only 40% of evangelicals believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. So, what we hear, especially in the media, often comes from unbelievers who do not hold a biblical worldview. And we can't even trust everyone who claims to be an evangelical Christian. So who do we believe? And how do we know we're hearing the truth? Quite simply, we examine the evidence. And even when we're hearing something we want to believe, especially if we really want to believe it, we need to slow down and check the source and the evidence More closely. And to be honest, sometimes we don't know if we really want to believe something or not. The disciples didn't know what to believe or even what to want to believe when they started hearing that Jesus had risen from the grave. And even after witnesses told them they had seen him, they didn't know what to believe. Surely they wanted to believe it but they were apparently afraid to let themselves believe it because, as we've all been told, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. But as we noted last week on Easter Sunday evening, the disciples had their doubts blown away when Jesus miraculously appeared in their midst. But one of them wasn't there, the one we call Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure why he got stuck with that moniker, when all of them doubted before they actually saw Jesus in the room. He just wasn't there when Jesus appeared, and he refused to believe the unbelievable without adequate evidence. Well, I, for one, am glad he insisted on that evidence because the evidence he was given not only helps me to believe, but gives me a response to those who question my beliefs. Let's look at the account this morning and find in it solid evidence for belief, beginning with a simple recognition that evidence is needed. We're in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. We don't know much about Thomas. He's named in the other Gospels with the twelve, but they say nothing else about him. Only John shares with us Any details about him. In the 11th chapter, when Jesus told the disciples he was going to go back to Judea because Lazarus had died, the other disciples all protested saying that the Jews would try to kill him if he went back. Thomas alone supported Jesus' decision and expressed his commitment to him by telling the others, let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas, also called Didymus, which means twin and we have no idea who his twin was, was a man of intense loyalty to Jesus. He was also a man who wasn't afraid to ask questions when he didn't understand something. At the Last Supper, Jesus spoke of going to prepare a place for his followers and said they knew where he was going and they knew the way to get there. Thomas spoke up and said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Now, I don't think he's the only one who needed clarification here. But he was the only one brave enough to ask for it. And I like that characteristic in a listener. And when preaching, I sometimes get the feeling there are some who don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But are afraid to Ask. And while it might be going too far for someone to shout out, Hold on, preacher, you just lost me. I do love it when questions are asked in my class after the worship hour. When Thomas didn't understand something, he wasn't afraid to ask. There's also a man who demanded to see the evidence before he'd believe anything. He wouldn't just believe something because everyone else did as we've noted he wasn't there when Jesus had appeared to the rest of the disciples on Easter evening why we don't know maybe he just wanted to be alone and grieve in private and i can understand that but we also see what he missed by not being with the others and that should serve as a warning to us Even if we don't feel like getting together with our brothers and sisters when they meet together, especially on the Lord's Day, we better be there because we never know what we'll miss by not being there. Thomas missed a beautiful time of worship and celebration with his risen Lord because he wasn't there. And there was no way the others could adequately share with him what he missed, even though they tried. They kept telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he couldn't believe it. Finally, he said, unless I see the holes in his hands and put my fingers in them and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He needed proof. He needed evidence. Evidence he could see and evidence he could feel. The others had seen and touched Jesus. He wouldn't believe unless he could do so as well. He wasn't asking for the impossible here. He was only demanding the same evidence that had convinced the others. And that evidence was soon presented. And after eight days again, the disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. It was one week later, and the disciples had gathered together again. It must have seemed right to gather on the day Jesus arose to talk about him, to remember him, to think about the future, something we still do. 2,000 years later, the door is locked again, like it was the week before. They're still afraid of the Jews, but not so afraid that they avoid getting together. And Thomas is with them this time. He had learned his lesson. He wasn't about to miss a gathering of the disciples. Then, just as he had done the week before, Jesus miraculously appeared in their midst. And again, he greeted them Peace be with you. He then immediately turned his attention to Thomas. He held out his hands and said in effect, Here they are. Go ahead. Put your finger in the holes. And go ahead. Put your hand in my side. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas said he would need in order to believe, and he gave it to him which, I might add, is something he still does. If you simply need evidence to believe, it will be made available. He will see to it. But you must ask for it and look for it. Now, whether Thomas actually reached out and touched his hands inside, we don't know. I think he did. He wanted to be sure. I don't think he wanted to look back and say, Did I really see what I thought I saw? Did Jesus really speak to me? I think Thomas reached out and touched Jesus just to make sure he wasn't imagining it. I think he felt the holes in Jesus' hands and felt the gash in Jesus' side. And when he did, he had all the evidence he needed and cried out, My Lord and my God. You know, that's the first time anyone referred to Jesus God. Others called him the Son of God and the Lamb of God, but only Thomas called him my God. And that's quite a statement for a monotheistic Jew to make. Jesus was God in the flesh, and Thomas knew it. There was no doubt in his mind. And he acknowledged that Jesus was his Lord, his master, Tradition tells us that that conviction later impelled Thomas to go to India to evangelize when he did not want to go there. But he'd seen enough to know that Jesus deserved to be the Lord of his life, and he surrendered to his lordship. I might add here that it's a refusal to surrender to the lordship of Christ that causes most to ignore the evidence that Jesus is God. It's not a lack of evidence that makes someone an atheist or an agnostic. It's a refusal to believe because to accept the evidence is to accept the fact that there is a God to whom you are accountable and to whom you must submit. Anyone who is intellectually honest and morally willing to believe can believe because the evidence has been presented and that evidence has been recorded. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I don't believe Jesus is reprimanding Thomas here. In fact, I don't think Jesus' first sentence in verse 29 should be translated as a question. I believe Jesus was simply stating a fact here. Because you have seen me, you have believed. The point he's making is that not everyone will be able to see him personally. Most will have to believe without actually seeing the resurrected Lord. That was true even in the first century. Over 500 did see the risen Christ, but the majority did not. And no one who was born after the ascension has seen the risen Lord because he's no longer here in the flesh. That does not mean, however, that we have to believe without evidence. It simply means we have to accept historical evidence. We believe George Washington was our president, the first president, without demanding to see him or touch him because there's overwhelming historical evidence that he lived, and he was our first president. Now, some stories about his life may just be that, like the cherry tree incident. But a critical examination of the historical record will enable us to sort out truth from fiction. And the same is true of our belief in Jesus. Now, that is not to suggest that we should let liberal scholars or panels of experts like the Jesus Seminar that spent 20 years trying to determine what Jesus did or did not say and voted on it by using colored beads to indicate the probability that something was true, don't let them decide for us. There are always some who take critical examination of the historical record to a ridiculous level and dismiss everything they don't want to believe. Let me assure you, there are many conservative scholars who have carefully examined the evidence and have concluded that we have a written record of the life and teachings of Jesus that is not only divinely inspired, but 100% accurate. Now, as we've noted before, we've been given four Gospels, four records of what Jesus said and did that are slightly different. That's intentional. It was so we could rest assured that collusion was not involved in putting together a story. But yet, by putting those accounts together, we do get a more complete picture of what happened. But we don't have a record of everything Jesus did and said. In fact, at the end of his gospel, John will tell us that if everything Jesus did was written down in detail, the world itself couldn't contain the books that would need to be written, and that is certainly true because Jesus is eternal. There would be no way to write down everything he ever did, and there really was no need to even write down all that he did while on earth, because what has been written is sufficient to establish the truth about Jesus. John says, what has been written has been recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. That evidence has held for 2,000 years. And millions have come to believe in Christ on the basis of the testimony given in Scripture. It's no longer possible to see our Lord in the flesh and to touch Him. But we do have the record of those who did, and that testimony is unimpeachable. We may not be able to look upon Jesus with our own eyes, but we can certainly look upon Him through the eyes of others. And through them, We have all the evidence we need. Through the historical record, we can, in good faith, turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And we, like Thomas, can exclaim, My Lord and my God. Amen? Listen.